We're continuing where we left off in our study. And again, it is April 19th, 2020. And uh, we're going to have the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, thought of the week. For we are God's workmanship. When we think about God's workmanship, this says that we are the products of God's work. However, we are not just a product of God's work. We are his magnum operandus. This is the greatest work he ever performed. The Father is proud of the work he plans and uses it to show forth his own character as its creator. He removes, he removes every tenth of sin and evil from us, and we will stand holy and blameless in his sight. Take it from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. When we look at ourselves, we cannot see how these glorious words apply to us. We should never focus on our limitations, but our focus should be on the work of God. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Take it from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The work in us will not be carried to completion by our work, but by the work of God in us. We can have confidence in his work by faith, looking away from ourselves to the Father's plan, allowing that plan to come into focus. We can trust in the statements made of us and begin to walk and see ourselves just as the Father does. God has done something marvelous for us. Since we are God's workmanship, we must be here for a very special purpose. We are designed to be the extension of God's presence and his purpose. We are equipped by God to do what he called us to do. All the assets we have been blessed with in this age are given with our specific purpose in mind. While we are here on the battlefield, we are perfectly equipped to do God's will. The victorious path before us has already been tried by our Lord Jesus Christ. We not we are not here to make our own way, but to walk by faith. In his death, taken from First John, chapter two, verse six. And the passage that really gets really excites me in Ephesians. I think the passage talked about this earlier, and he started about the work that God created us to do. For the scripture says in verse ten in chapter two of Ephesians, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's other scriptures that talk about our good works in Second Peter chapter 2 talks about that we must continue to do good works. You know, we are here not based upon our own merits, but only on God's work. Even when Christ went to that city and he prayed to the Father, it is not my will, but it's your will. Everything should be focused on the Father's will, not ours. Because this is what we are in God's plan, not our own plan. So this 
like it for just the title said, for we are God's workmanship. You say if you're supposed to be doing good works, you're supposed to look upon um, the Father. He, this is his design, not ours. So that's all I like about the Puerto Rican says, but we are God's workmanship. So that's what I get out of this thought of the week. So we'd like this song that you hand us over to um, the White to give us thought in prayer. Don't use the White. All right. Thank you very much, Dave. Well, let's bow our heads before God in prayer. Dear Father God, there is so much to be, uh, so much to be um, asking for. We have many, many supplications in this time of suffering and unemployment around the world. And so many people are, are devastated by what's going on and, and deaths are taking place. Um, a multitude of deaths are taking place. At the same time, it's amazing how we can be full of thanksgiving for everything that you've done for us. The work and your plan is, is, is going perfectly. And we are, are here to study your word and just to get a better understanding and grow in your word and, and understand more about what you have made of us. And uh, I pray specifically for Dave's sister, Brenda, who tested positive for COVID-19. And we, um, we ask that you would have mercy on her and have mercy on, on everybody who's been infected by this virus. We, um, you know, the, the virus is also causing a lot of fear and um, in, in the world and just unreasonableness in, in other cases. Let us be the ones to serve you and to serve them and let us offer hope through your word. Let us be focused hard on what you have made of us. And let us um, give us the courage and, a, and the will to carry out your purposes and what you have created for us. We are your workmanship. Let us demonstrate that in our purpose and action. I pray for Waters Truth Church, wherever they may be, and especially the people on this call or hearing this recording, um, who are taking the time to hear what you have to say. And I pray for churches and Christians all around the world that are being persecuted or just meeting together to, to come to know you better. But we uh, agree with your sentiment that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So give us hearts to listen, ears to hear, and um, strengthen Doug's heart and mind in wisdom as he delivers your word for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight and Dave. Appreciate that. We're going to continue on. Uh, hopefully you have notes before you. So we can uh, look to your notes and we'll find an outline there. In the notes, we're looking at uh, John 14, verse 19. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. If we pay close attention, we will hear these very great and precious promises the Apostle Peter spoke about. We should be leaning forward to see what God has in store for us from eternity past. With our Lord's physical departure, he promises his distraught disciples they will see him again soon. 
I'm imagining the furrowed brows and straining looks that must have that they must have had on their faces. They had no context to put this unprecedented information. Their only option was to believe the Lord. He hadn't let them down and he demonstrated that God was with him. They were quickly learning that their lives were dependent on Jesus. So as we get into this verse, this verse is fraught with massive meaning in terms of the Christian way of life. We'll get to all those details, but this was is, is one of my favorite verses as well. There's a lot of favorite verses. I guess it's probably what you say. He has a lot of favorites. So for point number one, we're going to break it down into a few phrases here. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. So the before long part, Christ refers to his soon departure. The next three days will be devastating for the disciples and Christ. And I also could put devastating, but also uh, they will rejoice after this time when they see the risen Christ, uh, raised from the dead and standing before them. So, but right at this point, they had to keep the faith in the face of opposing circumstances. And that's what faith often requires of us that we believe even though circumstances don't complement what we believe. We should also recognize that we live in a world that does not see the Father's eternal purpose. It refuses any hint of that to be uh, broadcasted in the world. So we know the world is against us. It's against Christ. And so we can recognize that there are opposing circumstances. I like what it says about Abraham in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham believed in hope that he would have a son. So even though Sarah could not have children, Abraham was no longer in a place where he could have uh, children. Abraham still trusted. God said it. Abraham said, okay, God, I believe it. You said that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. So Abraham believed it. He became, as a result of that, father of the faithful. That's the kind of faith. That's the quality of faith that we should pattern ours after. Even though circumstances we live in don't necessarily agree with what we believe, we trust God to be true. And uh, Christ will leave. And he will depart. And the disciples will implode as a result of that. And they will panic, they fear, worry. I like what Christ said in the earlier verses. If you love me, you will keep my my commands. Because he's saying that to say, listen, I'm telling you these things now so that when it happens, you will know that you remember when I told you these things. So he prepared them for sure. And all they could do at this point was trust that what Christ was saying was true. Like it says in the beginning of John there, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes about telling them information that is appropriate for this 
new age that is dawning. Let's move on. Point B, the world will not see me. So Christ predicts his death. He would not physically set foot on earth again until the second coming. Uh, so and we're talking his physical death. Christ died on the cross. And he said, the world will not see me again until he Now, he's not just referring to his death. He's referring to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. So there is that piece of the puzzle that we have to throw in there because once he left from the Mount of Olives, that's it until he comes back, physically speaking, in the second coming. Now, some might say, well, what about the rapture? Yes, Christ does come to earth at the rapture, but he does not set foot upon the earth. The scripture in Zechariah 14, 14 is a prophecy that says on that day, his foot will touch the Mount Olives and all kinds of things will happen as a result of that. I'll let you read Zechariah 14, 4 for yourself. He but he predicts that he is going to leave and the disciples are going to have to deal with that. This is the will of God. So point C, before long the world will not see me anymore. Point C says we should recognize the events that follow were according to the Father's plan. This is interesting to note. We're going to turn to Matthew, and we've used Matthew a lot here. It speaks so poignantly about uh, the Father's plan. So Matthew 16, we're going to look at verse 21. So this was after Jesus mentions, who do men say that I am? And then Peter answers and says, you are the son of God. Right? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For you, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Now, the, really? Even though it was from the Father, it was God the Holy Spirit that revealed that to Peter. It was not the Holy Spirit's revelation. It was the Father's revelation. That is part of the Father's plan. So the Holy Spirit enlightened Peter to that. And what did Peter do? Peter said, this is who you are. Interesting point here. And this is where I'm at. We, all of these events are according to the Father's plan. So then... Jesus, a couple verses later, at least that we have, he says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So notice, Jesus is not just talking about his departure. In his mind, these series of events are happening in succession. Right? And he's talking about this period where these events will begin to happen. Uh, many times in Scripture, he is talking about, my hour has come, or the, the hour is, is not come. Or, you know, he talks about it from that standpoint. What is the hour that he's referring to a particular point in time when these series of, of events begin to happen. And once they happen, successively, things will happen that will lead 
right on through the death, the burial, the resurrection. And as we know, what goes after that is the ascension. That's the departure. So, notice he will be raised to life. Now, verse 22, interestingly, says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. So I <laughs> think about that thought. On the one hand, well, I think that's in our next point here, point D. Isn't it interesting how Peter understood and accepted that Jesus was the Christ? Right? He got that, and he got that from the Holy Spirit, which is part of the Father's plan. But he rejected the way of the cross the Father planned. So it is interesting. He saw, hey, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the other hand, he said, wait a minute, you're not. This, in fact, this, don't even talk about this. He rebuked Christ. I can, I'm wondering what he said <laughs> exactly. Well, we do have some of the words he said, but man, it would have been interesting to hear the whole thing. He said, this will never happen to you. This is not the way we understand it. It's not the way we've been taught. That's what he was really saying. He was using his theology against what Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit revealed. So what happens here? Christ says to Peter, uh, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in, in, in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns or the things that men think about in their hearts. <clears throat> when he says, you are a stumbling block to me, that's, I mean, you might have, we might say, okay, Peter, you got some praise in, in the previous verse where you said, you are the son of God, right? You're the Christ. But here, this is, this is really bad because he, not only are this, you said a wrong thing, Peter, but you are in the way. In fact, you're not just talking about the plan of God. You are in the way. That's like the Pharisees. He says, you are blocking people from getting to the kingdom. You're in the way, Peter. You're a stumbling block to me. And this is bad. And the things that Peter regarded in his heart were not the plan of the Father, but the plan that he got from man, just what his theology was. He was not listening to Christ. Christ said, but when Christ talked to them, they needed to mix his words with faith so that they could hear the word of God and believe it. Christ wasn't talking to him for his health. Just, hey, let me just say this to you and let me throw this out as a, as a second opinion to things that are going on. No, he was telling them straight as to what would happen. And we have to start looking at the word of God that way. Like This is not what God wants to happen. This is what will happen. And that's how we have to begin to see the word, not when we look at the words in scripture that are, are said to us here, we have to take that as to us. This is literally the word of God. This is God speaking to us why we call it the word of God. So I would love for us to understand that, that dichotomy 
of how Peter, on the one hand, was willing to accept the Spirit's prompting, telling him, yeah, that's Christ. And on the other hand, he resisted the Spirit's prompting to trust in Christ, who was standing right there in front of him. So I would say, many times, we are in this boat. And we believe when things are according to what we think is reasonable, or we want to believe. But then we refuse to believe when we don't think things are reasonable. That's not what the life of faith is all about. Remember, we just talked about the opposing circumstances in which Abraham believed. And if Abraham were saying what's reasonable to him, he would have never been the father of faith. Because he said, man, I'm old. There's nothing more reasonable than him saying that. Sarah never had any kids, even when she was fertile. But now she's beyond the time when she can have kids. It's over. He could have easily concluded what was reasonable to him. But that's not how God operates. And God rewards those who diligently seek him. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that before we leave this section, I just want to make sure we understand we are often in this same boat where we refuse to believe the testimony of God. And remember, the testimony of God is not dependent on what is reasonable to you. It's not dependent on what your previous theology was, right? This is what I held to be true in my previous theology. And it and that seemed reasonable to me that that was true. I'm sure Peter wasn't just trying to be obstinate or a stumbling block. I'm sure he was helping. He thought he was helping here. But he wasn't. And we're not helping when we don't trust the Word of God. And we uh, put in place of the Word of God our reasoning, our former, our, the, our view of theology. We have to keep an open hand when it comes to theology. Because if we're going to be led into all truth, then we have to allow that we don't know where we're going. If we did, there was no way we could say we could be led into all truth. So resuming, it is important that we see that it is not about our theology. It is not about what seems reasonable to us. It is not about what we feel fits us. I, I like that truth. So therefore, I'm going to talk about it that way. We have to be open to God, the Holy Spirit, to lead us and take us into what is all truth. All truth, none of us know what that looks like. So what we have to do is have an open heart, knowing that things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither have they entered into the human mind, these are the things that God is prepared for us. So we have to keep an open mind when it comes to our theology. Right? We don't know where God's taken us. So we have to be and we have to be willing to allow him to take us where we are not sure of. I'd say that's exactly where the the uh, Abraham was. When he got to that point where God told him, he said, listen, Abraham, I know you tried all these other different methods to have a son, 
which are all wrong. They all seem very reasonable to you, but they were all wrong. Now you just got to trust me. Abraham said, okay, God, I trust you. I trust that you're you're telling me the truth that this is going to happen, and I'm believing it. In fact, I'm going to start on the uh, making the crib now, getting all the stuff for the baby ready, because I'm going to have a baby next year. So this is, we're continuing with that thought. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. Point number two, but you will see me. So I wonder how much disciples understood here, especially before Pentecost. And it's just my thought. When Christ is saying, listen, the world's not going to see me anymore, but you, you're going to see me. So what what was their immediate thought? I mean, did they think that Christ would secretly appear to them after he ascended? How would, I don't, there's really no frame of reference in their mind that they would have had this. But as is point B, these are definite promises. Christ is not saying, hey, don't worry. I'm with you in spirit, right? I'm really not here, but what is he really saying here that the disciples can latch on to? And the point that I would probably make here is that they didn't understand. They couldn't understand the dynamics of this until after Pentecost. So, because these, point B is, these are definite promises. They were indeed fulfilled at Pentecost. They, I mean, first of all, let's not take away from whatever Jesus is saying. Let's allow it and the words and the import of those words to be what they they will be upon us. If he's saying the earth's not going to see him anymore, and we know what that means is death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But the disciples will see him. After the Spirit comes. And we're, we have to understand the dynamics of how that works. But for sure, we have to know that it does work. The promises are true. So don't take away from what God is saying. It's happening. A person might say, well, I don't see Christ. I don't see that this is true. Listen, it doesn't mean that the promises are not true. Because there are limitations in us. It is available to us. God is saying, you will see me. To the disciples, he was referring, he, when he said this, you will see me. And they did. I, th- this was a fulfilled promise. However, by extension, the promise is true of us as well. We will see him. It is available to us as well. So point C, let's move on. I like their question. And this is, if I was there, I would have asked this question, and I'm sure you would have too. But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And just to remember, the disciples are standing there, and Jesus is telling them that you will see me again. And I know we're skipping ahead in our our verses here because in in John 14 this is this is a verse that's two verses two or three verses down the road and we'll get to this verse but what about that question that question tells us that they understood what Jesus was saying they got it 
right? This, this, they didn't say, oh, yeah, but it's just some spiritual thing. You're not really here. You're not going to really be here, but you're, we're, how, you, tell us, how do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Can you give us some dynamics here? And now, of course, that question comes on uh, before t- 20, where Christ did explain some things that are not in our context yet. So um, I'm telling you that this question begs more than what we're offering. I'm just saying at this point, I like the question. Right? He says, but you will see me. My first thought is, how does that work? You, why did, why is why are you doing it this way so but my next point would be which is found in point d i would have included the question how do you intend to show yourself how to us and not to the world right now, not just why because they ask why would you do it that way but i would have asked the question as well how do you intend to do it? And I would hope, probably, that the answer would cover both. And it sort of does for me, I understand. But I am post-Pentecost. So I, I know what happened at Pentecost. So I can understand, I can integrate all that Jesus is saying into the dynamics of how he intends to do it and why he intends to do it. I can easily do that. Those poor disciples, they didn't have the benefit of this. And this is why I was saying, I can imagine their furrowed brows and straining looks that must have been on their faces. Because they had to deal with the reality based on what they already knew to be true and not true. And so they, Jesus was teaching them. He, they just had to trust, believe, right? you love me, Jesus says, then you will keep what I'm telling you. you. You'll abide by what I'm telling you to be true. So, I would have included the question, why? But let's point, let's go to point E to note they did not physically see Christ. So even after Pentecost, they didn't, Christ wasn't physically there. So there are some dynamics to how this works. Like this we don't want to just make it seem like, yep, and he he came and he saw them, but he didn't show himself to the rest of them. But no, there are some dynamics. And to know he did not physically come. So when he says, but you will see me, he's not talking physically. And there are many scriptures that, that say that when he does come again <clears throat> for the church, he, he will receive them unto himself, and then he's going to take us to be with him where he is. That's heaven. Where is he at now? Heaven. Physical, resurrected, bodily form of Christ right now is in heaven. Now there are ways, there are dynamics in which we will discuss of how and why these things happen. Well, they ask the why, but I also need to put in the mechanics of the how that this happens. How Christ will be seen again by the disciples. We're going to get into the details of how that happens. And I will we'll, we'll take our time. And I want to get to, when we get to verse 20, 
which is next week, if we do get to verse 20 next week or whenever we get to it. I want to take that time to really talk about those dynamics of how this happens in us. Right now, it's all potential for the disciples. This will happen. This is what Christ is telling them will happen. And I don't want to get so far ahead that we're talking about post-Pentecostal information before we get to that in the context. So we'll take our time. It'll, it'll unfold to us, I think. We'll take our time. So, uh, and we will have to deal with some of it because Christ makes the next statement, uh, which is a little bit reaching into the church age. We'll, we'll talk about it. So, but to note, Christ did not physically, they didn't physically see Christ. This is point E. This is the result of Pentecost. It is through the ministry of the Spirit that they were able to see him. So we know that whatever Christ is promising, it is dependent on, like it says, the spirit of truth in the world cannot accept him, neither sees him nor knows him, but, he, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. So there's a context to this that we must follow. So, Christ's ability to be seen by the disciples and not the world has to, has to do or depend on God the Holy Spirit and the special ministry that happens at Pentecost. So there it is. I'm, I'm trying to lay it out there. It was a mouthful, but there it is. It depends on God the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So point number three. So altogether, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And here we go, point three. Because I live, you also will live. So this is profound. This is where we're getting to. So point A, the how question is answered in the next phrase. Our lives are merged with Christ's life. And Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 so just to know on the face of it, because I live, you also will live. So when we think about this, what he's introducing here is not physical life, because the disciples were physically alive. And they were physically alive, not because Christ lived. They were physically alive through progeneration, from the process of, you know, just people having children, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And obviously God set the whole thing in motion. Sure he did. And yes, God gives life, but that's not what he's referring He's not referring to physical life here. What he's introducing is a new dynamic of spiritual life that is found in Christ. And the disciples, even though they were saved by the grace of God, which means they believed in Christ, Peter had the right answer. You are the son of the living God. You're the Christ. He had the right answer when it comes to salvation. But there was a new life that is being offered here and that they should have expectation for. So the how question is answered, right? It's because I live, you also will live. So there's a new dynamic of life, a new uh, way of living in Christ 
that will be a part of our experience. Because, and our experience is dependent on his experience. Because I live, you also will live. That can't be said before Pentecost. That has to be said only after Pentecost. So the how is, if I go to Ephesians 1, just to note why it says, it, I say it here, that our lives are merged with Christ's life. This is easy for us because we've come through uh, a lot of studies in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5. We've been through there. We understand a lot of uh, the dynamics of this already. So our lives are merged with Christ. Look at 21, uh, 22, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. It says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in everyone, every way. So this is part of, I mean, there are so many aspects to this dynamic relationship that we have with Christ and the results of it that... Uh, it goes on and on. Metaphor after metaphor are, are they're used to to talk about this relationship that we have and all that it means, not only to God but to also us. What does it mean for us? So remember, what's happening in these verses? We we don't want to get too far away from the verse that we used to quote a lot more, but we haven't quoted it in a while. Ephesians one seventeen and eighteen. Where after Paul talks about uh, how proud he was of the Ephesians, <clears throat> verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And then <clears throat> verse 19 goes to talk about the second part. There are two parts. One, the riches of his glorious inheritance and in his holy people, his saints. And then the second part, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he's describing what type of power that is. And he goes into far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked. And he goes and God placed all things under his feet. And he's all talking about the power, right? That's verse 19, that is at work in us, right? He's describing that by going to all these great lengths. At the end of it, our verses are in play. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is indelibly connected to the person of Christ. Who's the person of Christ? We're just talking about his humanity? No, we're talking about the one who has been raised far above all principality. Now, not to say his humanity wasn't raised to that height. It was. But we're talking about the person, Christ, who occupies both deity, always has been God, and humanity, 
which is elevated, glorified to this point. That is what the church is indelibly merged with. That's who we are. We fulfill him in every way. So it says that we, he has appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And then he describes this relationship using the body metaphor. He's the head, we're the body. We fulfill what the head uh, requires of us. So moving on, we can go on about this. Point B, because I live, right? It's looking at that phrase, Christ is referring to after his departure, which we already saw, <clears throat> but you will see me. That is, after he dies, is resurrected, and ascends to the Father. Right? All of that is just to note, because I live, you will also live. And I just want to make sure the timing of what he's talking about is after Pentecost. Point C. Here is the essence of the Christian life. And I say, it's Christ. This is, this is what the Christian way of life is all about. It's not about mimicking who Christ is. It, it's, it's really not about us learning the tenets of Christianity and then following those tenets, those principles, to the letter. The truth about the Christian way of life is for Christ to actually indwell us. And that's what's happening in these verses that we have. Literally, Christ and us, our, our lives are merged. Now, it's interesting. How did this happen for us? I mean, and we spoke about this in the Q&A section of our worship this morning. And I was saying that the church is an exclusive group. It is a chosen group. You can't be in the church unless Ephesians 1.4, he chose us. It says it right here. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Uh, if I skip to verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so you can't be in the church if this hasn't happened. And this is before the creation of the world. So the church, as it forms, is answering the call of God from eternity past. So when Christ says, because I live, you also will live. He's talking about the relationship that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting if we <clears throat> look at what happens to us when we believe in Christ and we talk about uh, Christ in us, and we, we know about all the ministries of the Spirit, all those things. What, really, it talks about that we need to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it says, by the Spirit um, we are transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. Yeah, it's a process that we are being transformed. What is what God had already done the work. We are already united to the person of Christ. We are in Christ right now. And that's the reality of it from the standpoint of the Father. 
<clears throat> what we don't have is <clears throat> how this works, the function of it. And not only that, but the implications that follow what God has done. So we're discovering not only things that were hidden from ages and past generations, but were hidden God. We're discovering all of that, but what are the implications? What, are, what is the Father's plan? Right? All of those questions, that is what we're being transformed into. And what, what does it literally say? We have the mind of Christ. That's what we have. So point B is, is that, or I'm sorry, point C, this is the essence of the Christian life. If you don't have these dynamics, you can't really call yourself a Christian. I'm not trying to redefine Christianity. Even if a person doesn't know that they, uh, you know, are in Christ and and that there's a new creation afoot, if they don't understand any of that, and they believe in Christ, they are saved. It is God's objective to begin to teach them about the decisions that they have made and the decisions that God has made from eternity past. God the Holy Spirit will teach them about how that works. So this is the essence of Christianity right here. This is it. If you wanted to know what is Christianity summed up in six or seven words, because I live, you also will live. We can't live unless Christ lives. Now, I may not have included all this, all my thoughts here on paper, but the fact that Christ lives and the, the plan was to have Christ as the doorway to bring many sons into glory. He's not just the doorway to salvation, but he is the doorway to bring many sons into glory. And this doorway, not, without Christ doing the work he did and performing all the tasks, God could not, he could not be used. God the Father couldn't use him in order to bring many sons into glory. He is not only just uh, somebody who succeeded where Adam failed. He is a new Adam. He is, as Corinthians says, the last Adam. He's not just someone who comes from Adam who conquers and succeeds. He is not in Adam at all where all are dead. He is a new Adam. And there's uniqueness about this that wasn't said in the Old Testament, that was, wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And part of it, that Christ would be the last Adam, is part of the mystery age. No one knew that that would be the case, and, that, and not only that, that we would be after him as well, not after the first Adam. So this essence exists because Christ lives, and because Christ is not only said to be uh, he didn't he lived the perfect life before the Father. This is the one who the Father approved as my beloved Son. But now he's in heaven, continuing the work, interceding for us, bringing those to help the Father to bring those many sons into glory. He's on board. It is his mind. 
He is the sun, right? We could go on with all these different types of analogies and build them out, but it will be too much. And, you know, as time goes on, we'll develop each one as we have, but we'll bring them to the table as they are appropriate. So point D, and what I'm already seeing is I'm probably not going to be able to finish this thought. Well, point D, how can this be? And how does this work? This is something that is beyond human. We can't talk about these things. We're talking about how God created Adam, and from Adam, all men came to exist. All nations, eventually, came from one man. And when we think about that, that is stupendous in the way we can think about something mighty and great. God did a mighty work when he created man. And he created man in his image. But then... He brought forward his Christ after man failed and his Christ redeemed him and all that. But Christ came not as someone who just wanted to redeem Adam's fallen race, but as a part of God's ultimate plan to bring many sons into glory. So we have to pivot to that. We have to begin to see that that is what is unique about Christ, as well as He is the Savior of all mankind. He paid for all of our sins. Yes, he did. But now, a greater thing exists. Christ lives for this as well. So I want us to pivot and make sure we, when we think about Christ, this is who we think about. This is the person that God is using in this age to tell the story of his eternal purpose. And that's why the church is here. That's to make all men know, right? This is the revelation, right? The administration of this mystery. And Gentiles, Jews, and angelic. All of those entities should know how they function and how God's eternal purpose affects them. So how can this be and how does this work? We could ask that question. And it is literally explained in Scripture. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 6. And we'll start at verse 4. Far from dealing with some legalists who was asking this question, uh, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Far from that, Paul has got a lot to teach. Because we got to renew our minds so we can understand what God has wrought. So, verse 4. We, are there, we, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live the new life, a new life. That new, and we already said before, I don't know if I said it, uh, Wednesday, but that new is kainos new, never before seen new. The life that we live in Christ is his resurrection life. That's where he is in heaven. Because I live, you also will live. The life, the spark of life that is in me, the resurrection life, is now offered to you after Pentecost. That is the new relationship that we have and we're called christians but all of that is behind it 
what that means to be a Christian. Because I live, you also will live. And that, so point D, and, and that's it, Romans 6, 4, is clear when we look at that thought that it is through baptism. Well, when did baptism happen? He's talking about Pentecost here. He's not talking about just because you were baptized in water and something happened. No, it was the spirit baptism. The one that Jesus told them uh, that he had much more to tell them, more than they could now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, or when the spirit of truth comes, he will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us, right? This is all in the context of Pentecost, spirit baptism. What does it result in? It results in this new life. That's important for us to see. Yeah. So there's a lot. Uh, and I'm wondering if I should continue. I probably will probably try to. I'll try to end it here with this thought. Because I'm not going to be able to finish this. So we're going to have to break it up into two parts. But. And suffice to say, I, maybe I, this is part of what I want to leave on your mind. This, the essence of Christianity is, like it says, because Christ lives, we also would live. You know, we're in him. The only way that we could die or that our spiritual lives could be extinguished will be that Christ be extinguished. The properties that accrue to us as a result of our identification with Christ, our being in Christ, cannot be broken by us. Christ is the one who dictates and who sets the standard for who he is. That's why there's in Christ there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ would have to be condemned for me to be condemned. So there's a lot that we take from this. Because I live, you also will live. And the life that we live will be the quality of resurrection life that he is now living in heaven. So we can understand what Colossians is talking about. Uh, don't set your minds on things on the earth. Set your minds on things in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because that's the life that we have now. That's who we are. In him it may not be so evident while we are still here on the battlefield, but this is your destiny. Let's bow our heads as we close. We'll talk more about this next week. Father, thank you for the privilege of your choice. We did not coerce it. We weren't there, but you chose us in him before the creation of the world. We thank you for your choosing, for your sovereignty, and we accept the call. And we want to walk worthy of the calling we have received. We appreciate the, the church as well, word is truth, that you have allowed us to be able to talk about these deep things. We thank you for those who have joined. We also continue to pray for the pandemic that we are all facing and struggling with. We pray for those who have been uh, infected by this virus and we pray for the loss of life and the mourning and grieving and sorrow that goes along with losing loved ones. 
we pray that we will continue to, to fight through with the fight of faith and the mindset of understanding who we are in Christ and that we have a plan that is uh, here in the world for us at this point. Thank you. In, in Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.